Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This is the Josh Marshall podcast. We have a bunch of stuff we're going to discuss today. We also have we have a, an, an annual fundraising drive here at TPM. I'm gonna I'm gonna touch on that. And we have also a, a special guest, uh, you know, another member of the TPM family, but another person joining us besides Kate and I. So you know. Big thing since the last episode is we've had you know finally uh, we've had these the first hearings of the January 6th investigative committee. And that has been kind of hanging out there for, I guess, about a year now. You know, they went a few, I don't remember exactly how long, they went a couple months, a few months, something like that. I don't know exactly when the they passed the, you know, empowering legislation through the House to create this committee. But, you know, at first there was going to be a nonpartisan, you know, outside commission, and then there was going to be a... I, I, they got kind of tripped up where, um, what was it? There was going to be an outside commission. Then there was going to be some sort of committee, but it was going to have more Democrats than Republicans, which is, you know, kind of how committees work when you're in, when you're in the majority. And uh, Republicans said no to everything. And finally, Nancy Pelosi just said, okay, fine. We're just going to pass this as a normal thing. You don't want to, you know, we're not going to beg you to like, you know, just do the right thing. So they did this. And then they, then there was the thing about Kevin McCarthy putting, you know, putting the top insurrectionists on the committee. And in a very Pelosi, you know, Pelosi is, I assume, well, I think it's pretty clear she's in her last term as speaker because she sort of signaled that she's probably done being speaker, even if the Democrats retain their uh, majority or likely so. In any case, there was one of those kind of very Nancy Pelosi kind of moments, sort of in, in in my mind, sort of her at her best, where I think they signaled in advance, um, and I think the bill was written that that you know there's going to be representation from both parties, and uh, the GOP leader will nominate his people, but the final choice, you know, the final decision is up to Nancy Pelosi. So uh, Kevin McCarthy, as I said, kind of put all the crazies on his list, you know, a kind of a, a sort of a big fuck you, basically. And, you know, I dare you. And she said, we're not doing that. And everybody's like, oh, no, just no. I'm not even sure it was like instant too. just no. We're not, none of those, I guess, I guess, what was it? She allowed, uh, we'll get into this in a, in a moment, maybe. Th- there were, um, I mean, I keep thinking of Jim Jordan, maybe Banks was another one. There, there was mm-hmm. like five or six, something like that. And three of them were, again, like the top insurrectionist types. And then a couple others were, you know, 
sort of mainline, I mean, what counts as a mainline Republican these days, but not people who were kind of, you know, full QAnon or whatever. And I believe that she allowed those, but, you know, kind of just said flat no to two or three or something like that, at which point my recollection is uh, McCarthy basically said, then fine, we're not participating at all. And then she said, you know what? I'm going to get my own Republicans. And that's when she grabbed the Liz Cheney and the Kit, what was it, Kitzinger, uh, the other guy. So um, so the, the hearings are, uh, you know, finally happen and we've had uh, two and then, you know, kind of two and a half or two and a, two and a quarter where they, they had to like reschedule one or, or whatever. And so we're going to talk about that. I mean, I don't know what you, what you, the listeners thought about it. I thought the, certainly the first hearing was, was really pretty powerful. I don't think there's any other way to put it. And, and not just powerful. I mean, you can't tell the story without it being powerful and upsetting and infuriating if you believe in the American Republic. But, you know, we seem to have differing views about that matter uh, these days. Uh, but even, but even in, in, in our world today, it was, it was, I thought it was a very powerful presentation. Um, the second one was, I guess, kind of equally so. Uh, you know, it's obviously kind of technical matters aren't necessarily going to connect in the way those pictures of a kind of, you know, basically like an armed assault on the Capitol. And, you know, it's funny, some of those, I don't, I don't know, I don't know whether it was the fact that they were weaving together different views of what was happening during the break into the Capitol complex, or maybe it was just new video or whatever. It it, see, it it hit me more than it normally does that this wasn't just like a, you know, this wasn't just scuffles. Like if you're one of the police, you're looking out at hundreds of, of you know, not armed with firearms, but armed, angry people charging you. And, and you, you know, gave me at least like a very, a very palpable sense of like, if you're one of the police officers there, dude, you are so outnumbered. I don't know exactly the number, but you know you've got—I don't know—maybe if maybe a couple, maybe a few dozen police officers on that kind of extended perimeter, and you've got hundreds and hundreds of insurrectionists. You know, the big thing with with in policing is always you want to totally outnumber uh, either the either the bad guys or the protesters, just because because you want to be in control of the situation. You don't want it to become a fight. You know, if 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 you outnumber them, it's not going to be a fight. You kind of say what goes. And, you know, they were completely outnumbered, very terrifying situation. And, you know, I'll, I'll, before we get to the conversation, I'll, I'll get to this one point. And our colleague, Nicole, did a post about this yesterday that kind of got me thinking about it. And I'd, I'd been talking to someone else a couple days earlier. And that is, I kind of get the sense that a significant slice of Republican elected officials are kind of hoping that the Democrats and Liz Cheney are going to take care of Trump for them. Now, over the last like 15 years, we have this recurrent conversation among a certain kind of Democrats. Oh, you know, the fever's finally going to break. We're going to get back to the Howard Baker, Bob Dole, good old days of Republicans. I'm not saying that at all. They don't want to get rid of Trumpism. But they're ready for Trump himself to move along. Um, he's an un, 
well, he's obviously an unstable figure, but I mean, he's a, a politically unstable figure. He's a, a, a dangerous force for them too. And so I think there are a significant number of Republicans who are hoping or open to maybe this just kind of takes a bit of the polish off him for enough Republicans that he's not really going to be the force he's been, that it's not going to be credible for him to run again in 2024. And we've already we've already seen some of this happening, you know, some of, you know, th- those races down in Georgia where the people he sort of dedicated himself to destroying won their, you know, won their primaries, but I think there's a little more of it there. And I at least want to talk to my colleagues and when we when we get to discussing this, but I at least, and I don't know if I'm 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 not listening closely enough, but I'm not hearing a lot of pushback from other Republicans to these committee hearings. You know, there's some, you know, from the from the the Bobert types and stuff, yeah. And there's some kind of pro forma stuff from like the Kevin McCarthy's and, you know, oh, it's another witch hunt and, you know, I'm not hearing that much. Just not hearing that much. And I think, uh, well, that's that's just my sense of that. And again, this is not like a positive thing or like congratulatory because, you know, the, the he didn't show up because his, his wife went into labor, but that Stepien guy who used to be Chris Christie's guy back in the day, who's, who was really the sort of the kind of the sort of the, the organizer of the Bridgegate thing, not the one who actually did it, but the, you know, the guy in the highest level of authority in that, in that little crew and everything. And then he, and then he ran Trump's campaign. And, you know, he, in, when they, in the recorded testimony, he's there basically saying, yeah, you know, we were team normal, got Rudy and the crazies and, uh, you know, very matter, not like Bill Barr saying, oh, that was bullshit and had he lost control of his mind, but very matter of fact, like, uh, yeah, we lost. And that was the time when we lost. And Trump said, no, we won. And I said, no, sir, no, we lost. Okay. So you see that and you're like, oh, he's on team normal. But he's also running the primary challenge to Liz Cheney. And he's you know, he's political consultants. He's running on, doing all sorts of races and stuff like that with the banner of Trumpism. You know, there's what he said in that testimony, but he's still on Team Trump. And what is Trumpism now? In 2016, Trumpism was the border, the border of the wall. That was, that was Trumpism. That was the thing. And what is Trumpism now? It's the big lie. Have you heard Trump talking about the border recently? I mean, yeah, it's like the 10th down the list, but the big thing is the big lie. The fake elections, the blah, 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 blah. So, you know, they don't want to get rid of Trumpism. They don't even want to kind of get rid of the big lie. They just want Trump to maybe move along, make, you know, make room for Tom Cotton or whoever else it's going to be. Um, so we're going to talk about that. Before we do, let me, let me quickly do uh, a little house business, but this is important house business. We are doing this annual drive right now for the TPM Journalism Fund. And what is the TPM Journalism Fund? Well, basically, it is the way that we raise additional funds to support our work above and beyond the subscription fees that make up the overwhelming percentage of our budget. It's really, really important. It funds all of our work. And this year, we our goal is to raise $200,000. Um, really critical for um, our budget. These are challenging times in the political news publishing business for a lot of reasons. Some reasons that are 
new or have increased in the last year or so just because of kind of what is in the news. And that's in addition to things that I've been you know, telling you about for six or seven years about the evolution of the advertising industry and all these other, all these other things that have, that have been um, you know, ganging up on us, us being people who, who are involved in, in political news publishing. So this fundraiser, this drive is really, really important. Uh, if you are able, I really, I invite you to contribute. You can go to our website, talkingpointsmemo.com. It'll be, you know, splashed with all sorts of different links and stuff where you can contribute to our, to our drive. And then the other, the one other thing I want to mention about this is that in addition to, you know, we, we raise some additional money that, uh, you know, helps cover salaries and 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 rent and all the miscellaneous you know web hosting and all the miscellaneous things that go into uh running a political news website but the additional thing we do is for every $60 that is contributed we create a community subscription a community membership to TPM and what is that it's what allows us to both have a membership site that has a paywall but also make sure that we are not excluding people who do not have the financial wherewithal to subscribe. So basically, every unit of $60 that gets contributed, we create one of these community memberships, then we assign them to readers who either have some financial hardship, they're out of work, uh, they're a senior citizen on a fixed income, etc. And then the other category is we give these community memberships to enrolled students. So they don't have you don't have to be full time. You know, not everybody can afford to to be uh, in school full time. You just have to be enrolled in a school, and we will assign one of these free memberships. And that is how we, again, have a membership, a metered paywall. Um, that is how we we fund the operation, but we're not excluding people at the same time. So you are also making that possible. So if you, if you are able, um, I encourage you to uh, uh, make a contribution. We all appreciate it. And uh, that is, uh, I guess that's all I'll say about it after I said a lot about it. One final thing, let me remind you, it's peak iced coffee season, that wonderful time of year where you start planning your next iced coffee order while walking home with your current iced coffee. And it's all fun and vibes until your July credit card statement arrives. Luckily, there's no need to go cold turkey when saving money is as easy as switching to cold brew. With Grady's Cold Brew Bean Bag Kit, you can brew 36 servings of refreshing New Orleans-style iced coffee for just a buck a cup. That's a major savings compared to buying at your local shop. Plus, you'll have a fridge stocked with coffee when your next craving hits, which I'm guessing is any minute now. Ready to give it a swirl? Save 25% off Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. Okay, uh, co-host Kate Riga, would you like to introduce our special guest and let us know what we're talking about. Yes, we are joined today by TPM reporter Matt Shuham coming to us live from New York. Hello, Matt. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for joining. So Matt, along with Josh Kavinsky, has been kind of anchoring our coverage of the January 6th hearing. So, you know, we're really glad to have him on hand to parse the details of the first few days. And I think, you know, one thing, Josh, in your monologue, you were talking about the kerfuffle about this time last year about how to stand up this commission or this committee. And it's interesting because I wrote a piece on this the other day and it it just reminded me that the independent commission that Democrats then were clamoring for and that, you know, Benny Thompson mentioned in his opening statement and everything was 
would not have led to even the first few days of hearings that we've had now. You know, it needed uh, Republican sign-off on the on the the subpoenas. You know, each party got to assign the same number of seats. Um, they had a due date by the last day of 2021, which we've obviously <laughs> blown right by. A joke, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it is just, it's funny now thinking back that Republicans killed that. Kevin McCarthy turned on John, John Katko, who he had reportedly asked to figure out the contours of what a commission would look like and was like, you know, never mind about that, vote against it. McConnell came out against it. And that is how, how we got this committee that we have today, um, which, you know, has turned up some some pretty inf- some pretty interesting information and also some pretty interesting i think just weaving together some stuff we already knew or mostly knew into a compelling narrative um so i guess just to kind of start us out with some of the big questions that have emerged from the first few days one thing that there seems to be a lot of focus on is showing that trump knew that the that his attempts to overturn the election were kind of bogus, that it wasn't really stolen. There seems to be a lot of emphasis on, you know, what did he know and that he did know instead of that he was just kind of this like detached balloon being drifted around by by these winds of, of whimsy. So what do you guys think about that? And why do you think it's important to nail down that he knew that the election wasn't actually stolen and he was acting on it anyway? Yeah, I mean, that, that definitely was the focus of the first day. Uh, the second day, they had some high profile um, witnesses both days from the White House, from Trump's campaign. Um, and, and it is uh, a big difference um, from the impeachment, because um, that was sort of in the days after this happened. And now we've had all of these months for the committee to issue subpoenas, to work with potential witnesses, to get them into uh, deposition rooms, basically. It's an interesting question, the import of it, because obviously part of this committee is building a case for Merrick Garland. Um, and trying to create, you know, going down the checklist of what criminal culpability is uh, on Trump's part. But then even aside from that, I think it's sort of a, a role, the, the role of sort of clarifying um, what Trump was doing this entire time. Um, the committee laid out on the first day that part of the uh, seven point plan that they said Trump followed. Um, the last part of it was once this attack got going uh, he didn't do anything about it for several hours. So from the very beginning of this, from when he was spreading doubt about mail-in ballots to the night of the election, where he immediately and uh, declared that it was rigged, all the way through the attack itself, they seem very focused on getting into his head a little bit. And I think even aside from the criminal law side of things, it's a matter of sort of establishing this narrative and giving him agency. Um, I think it's sort of a a meme on the right that Trump is sort of uh, struggling with either the deep state or with Republicans who betray him. He's this person that things happen to. And in that way, he's a stand in for Republican voters who feel like they're being taken advantage of or ignored. Um, And so I think the role of the committee is to sort of illustrate he is the source of all this. And even today, I mean, Josh, like you said, the fact that the big lie is Trumpism is is because that's all he cares about. That's what he's focusing on and is driving the rest of the party. Um, so at least uh, to me, at least from these first two days, that seems to be their goal. Yeah, I, I think that is right as what they are trying to do. It both makes sense and it also makes me 
rather uneasy because it means buying into this self-exonerating nonsense mythology about Trump. You know, the sort of the Mm. Trump's, the Trump presentation has like two or three rungs to it. If you are a hardcore Trumper, you think the election was stolen from him and he's fighting back. And I think you're exactly right, Matt, that as the as the perpetual victim, he is the stand in for the Republican voter. Um, If you don't believe that, you go one rung down. And on that rung, you're like he you know, he, he hadn't been president before. He didn't know he wasn't he didn't know how to be president. He didn't know you couldn't do that. He's not used to following the law. He's never followed the law. So what can you, how would you expect he would know this? And what they are trying to attack here is this idea, well, he shouldn't have done all this stuff, but he really thought he won. And if you really thought the election had been stolen from you, you'd probably pull out all the stops. And and he's just, he that's what he thought. He's He'd never run for re-election before. That's, you know, just good faith misunderstanding. And that that's so absurd just as a factual matter that is so absurd that it always kind of pains me to see people buy, you know kind of buying into that being a question on on the one hand you know on the other hand kind of like this is not how we do law in this country you know if you if you go and if you go and and cut someone's head off who just you saw walking down the street and you say i i I just had a feeling he was going to kill me. And, you know, you take that into a courtroom, they don't say, oh, okay, too bad for that guy. You, you had that misunderstanding. It's not how it works. You, your, your claims have to be reasonable. They can't be totally nonsensical. They are not a, just a, a, a get out of jail free card. Um, so it troubles me in, in that way. I think it shows a basic misunderstanding of who Trump is, how he operates. Not even that he lies, just that he doesn't, he doesn't have this kind of linear understanding of true and not true that most people think in terms of. Some people lie. We all fib sometimes. But broadly speaking, our model is things that we say, things that we think are true, we say. And things that we think are not true, we don't say. And we, you know, some of us can't always keep to that model, but that's the model. That's not Trump's model. There's what Trump wants. And then just you backfill to say what gets you to what you want. And so I don't even think in his mm-hmm. mind, it's even the, even, even lying is kind of, is I, I suspect a kind of an alien, an alien concept to him. Because what's lying? I, I said what I... I said that because I want that thing. It, it's right. like saying, right. like, is Marlon Brando a liar because he said he was Vito Corleone? No, he's an actor. What are you talking about? It's not lying. <laughs> so um, having said all that, I do think, I mean, you can't, you can't get into this thing where we are trying to get into Trump's head when obviously you can't get into Trump's head where he's the ultimate fact witness as to what actually went and you know, what his thought process was. But I think it's good it is helpful in some respects to have saying like, no, this wasn't kind of like the deep state people. This wasn't, you know, you and your band of brothers fighting the good fight. Your top people all said, dude, this is bullshit. Like they knew, they all knew, Mm -hmm. they all knew, they all said it to you. They said it in advance. And when they explained it to you, you said, 
okay, whatever. Let's let's move on to a new idea. Like you didn't care. You clearly didn't care. And you know, for a certain kind of person, I guess that that you know that counts for something. So that's good. And it just I do think there's you know one of the things about Trump and Trumpism is that as nonsensical as all of this stuff is, you get lulled by his act. You hear him saying it so many times, and he's such a compulsive liar that it, you start to you, you start to kind of lose track of the fact. Oh yeah, he was just here saying like, "Oh, bummer, I lost," but fuck that. I want to stay president, so let's come right. up with some weird shit about Italy, change the voting machines. One and one one thing, of, totally take your point on he has no concept of right or wrong, true or false. It's whether it benefits me or whether it do, doesn't benefit me. Um, and so I agree, it's sort of pointless to try to go down that wormhole. But one thing he does have a very good sense of is cause and effect. He knows when he's at a rally and he says something. He can see how the crowd responds, right? And that's how he's crafted his entire political career. And something that they didn't get into is there were rallies in D.C. for the stolen election cause in November 2020 and December 2020. And the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and America First racists all came out and the, things got violent. And Trump gave them the motorcade drive by. And then the second time, I think he went by, went, went by in Marine One or whatever, and he praised these people. And so he created an incentive structure where he knew, and obviously he, he, he didn't know this before, that if he beckoned everybody to D.C. and said, march down Congress and put some pressure on them to steal the election, that they would do that. So even apart from the pointless question of, did he really think that he won the election, he clearly knew um, that if he told his people the election was stolen, that they would respond in kind. Um, so... I think that's really important for the committee to establish. They didn't get into those rallies in November and December, which I thought were quite important because it showed the actual logistics of getting people to D.C. But I, I think we're going to see, hopefully see a lot more of that as we get into the mechanics of how this January 6th rally came together. And especially the question of Trump wanting to march with people to uh, Congress, because Everything that we've reported on and that we've seen from the first impeachment and from all the leaks and the testimony from this committee is that he was very focused on applying as much pressure as he could to everybody in the process that stood in his way. Um, and so whether or not he, he really knew that he lost, um, he, he was very clear eyed about getting this done. And so the committee, I think, is, is most useful. They did, you know, they did focus on that one tweet. You know, the it'll get mm -hmm. wild, it'll mm -hmm. be wild or what, whatever it was when he yep. was basically announcing the January 6th protest event, whatever you want to call it. And I remember, you know, because there was, as, as you allude to, there was that rising sort of gyre of election D.C. centered violence over those weeks. Mm -hmm. There was that thing where uh, the Proud Boys, you, you know, what is it, tore down a Black Lives Matter uh, yep. installation at a church or something like that, an African-American uh, church. And so th that crew had already shown up a few times and each time it got a bit more violent. And I remember when I saw that tweet, I think I immediately wrote something kind of like he's inviting people. He's saying, come and get violent. And it was it. Mm -hmm. You know, as much as I'd been watching this guy for five years, I was really blown away by it because that like it'll be wild. Like, what does that mean? Well, we know what that means. You know, 
so yeah, but mm-hmm. but you're right that there's all that there's all that context and backstory they haven't even really gotten into yet. Do you think that? Mm-hmm. Do you guys think that's the reason for the kind of notable focus on militia's role in this whole thing? Is a, a way of showing Trump's like call to action culpability? Yeah, I wrote about this after the, I think it was the first hearing. If we remember back to the days before January sixth, this was. Um, uh, his options were basically running out, right? Um, and so the fear was that he had beckoned people to D.C. and there was going to be some sort of violent incident that would enable him to basically bring the military, get them involved and, and get really crazy and, and uh, basically uh, hunker down in the White House. Um, that didn't happen. Um, but what did happen is he had sort of a paramilitary um, he had the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, um, who, as we've seen with these federal criminal investigations, were quite organized. Um, they had distinct uh, structures within them. Uh, they had conference calls going on in the weeks ahead of this. Um, they had stashes of weapons, um, a drive away. Um, they used military formations. They mapped out ahead of time. We learned this past hearing uh, because a documentary filmmaker had embedded with the Proud Boys that they had sort of circled the Capitol ahead of time and chose the weakest uh, point to enter, which was also the point um, that was basically uh, on the line between the White House and Congress. So it was the first place that all of Trump's people would hit was also the place that they they pierced first. and at the end of establishing that, I think it was at the end of the first hearing, uh, the committee chair, Benny Thompson, said, this is what um, basically an organized, coordinated attack looks like. Um, so, yeah, I, it's hard to say where they're going to go with this, because as much as the committee presented is as much as I know about it. Um, in other words, um, they haven't shown, they haven't demonstrated that they have anything about the Proud Boys or the Oath Keepers or other armed groups uh, and, and we know now that there were guns in the crowd, but they haven't shown that they have any knowledge that prosecutors already haven't aired publicly. Um, so it's it's an open question whether they have anything to that. Do you effect, mean known but, publicly um, about like who was directing them, like whether there was like a White House to Proud yeah. Boys nexus, basically? Right, right. There was one plea deal from an Oath Keeper um, that described in the final hours of the attack, basically the Capitol police were clearing everything out and reestablishing a perimeter. And Stuart Rhodes, this plea deal from another oath keeper described Stuart Rhodes getting on the phone with somebody who the plea deal described as some sort of intermediary and saying, put me through to the president. Basically, this is a person that he thought and apparently had some reason to think could put him in touch with president Trump. Um, and so we knew that from the criminal um, case. Uh, apparently that person rejected Stuart Rhodes. Um, but it would be great if the committee had more information about what that meant. I mean, it was sort of this tantalizing thing in a plea deal that the Oath Keepers had some intermediary to the White House. Um, but yeah, the only other, so that sort of information has come out of the criminal trials. Uh, the, the Oath Keepers were um, guarding Roger Stone the night beforehand. Um, and then they used the same golf cart, I think, to storm the Capitol as they were using to chauffeur him around. Um, so yes, any more information on that front um, would be would be news for sure. Um, but so far, it seems like they've sort of described these groups as, like I said, a paramilitary, basically as uh, as Trump's kind of henchmen. The one thing there that really, sh- I mean, the, the the point you just made, 
they were there acting as bodyguards in the sort of the 48 hours right. previous, the Oath Keepers, um, for Roger Stone, who's a longtime associate and friend of the president's. I mean, that almost, <laughs> there's your, I mean, there's at least one of your intermediaries right there. Um, now, we right. don't know if he was actually sending messages back and forth, but I mean, I feel like we kind of know. And I was just, I, that was the part of the whole presentation that got my attention, the whole first hearing that got my attention most, which is there's always been, you know, the kind of the, no big deal argument from the set, you know, from the right and some of the center is kind of like, yeah, he got a bunch of crazies down there. It got out of hand. And okay, that's not an insurrection. It's not a coup. That's just sort of like a bunch of yahoos went off. And, you know, these guys didn't know that was going to happen. And what they at least said, and I think argued fairly convincingly, that yes, probably most of the people there. We're just there. We're going to get rowdy. We're going to we're going to save the president. But they didn't have like a specific plan, maybe. But those guys had a specific plan. And when you're in that kind of crowd situation, you need an organized group to lead the way. And so mm -hmm. you've got everybody there. Everybody's angry. They've got their flagpoles and truncheons and everything. And those guys say, all right. Take that entrance, take that entrance, go through. And obviously, once they went through, all the sort of all the other people, you know, kind of came behind. And it's not it's not a matter of of exonerating those people, but you need someone to light the match, someone who has a specific right. plan. And those guys had the specific plan. Right. They had the bullhorns. They had the entrance points. Um, without them, it's hard to say what would have happened. It seems like the police would have been overrun, but. There was a lot of the maneuvering that it, it looks very chaotic on camera, but when you dig into it a little bit, you can see that it was very thought out by, by certain groups of people. It is interesting that this ties into what I think like the driving thrust of the first two hearings have been, which is that this wasn't a spontaneous kind of outbreak of violence, that it was coordinated on all these different fronts. You know, you had Trump sowing the seeds with his election fraud stuff and then you know, even more concretely in his, this potential call to action, you know, with that tweet and, you know, maybe to be released more interactions with the militia. And then you have this other piece, which we can talk about that kind of came out today, which is evidence or suspicion maybe of, of representative Barry Loudermilk giving his constituents a tour where the people are taking photos of like stairways and hallways and just stuff that strikes you as, as one does when you're visiting uh, the Capitol. Right. Like that's a, <laughs> right. I got to get a picture of that stairway. It's Not lovely. the rotunda, mm -hmm. but this back stairway, you know, what do you guys make of that please? Right. Well, just, I have a few notes. Um, Cause I, I looked around a little bit after that news came out. So, yes, the, for people that have not seen this, a very louder milk um, was accused of giving a tour to people who were subsequently involved in the Capitol attack. The committee sent a letter to him today, a follow up uh, letter, basically spelling out um, the evidence that they had. Um, and it was uh, quite striking. It was a, a guy who on January 6th had a flagpole that was sharpened into a spear oh, and was calling out Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, Jerry Nadler, AOC, said they would he would drag him out by their hair. Um, what they didn't make clear in the letter is what he actually did after that. So I don't know if this guy entered the Capitol, if he was violent at all. But um, once they posted that 
letter and they posted a video also of um, this guy's tour, um, congressional staffers started weighing in. I, one of them said uh, um, they were unescorted by any member or staff at the time. This was somebody that had seen this tour when it happened. Another staffer said, I'm immediately convinced that this is reconnaissance. He's taking pictures of the entry points around the security checkpoint uh, to, the, to the Cannon Tunnel, which connects the House office buildings to the U.S. Capitol. Uh, Congressman Brandon Boyle said, this is the stairwell, as in one of the stairwells that the, these tourists, uh, quote unquote, took a picture of. This is a stairwell I take to my office. In my eight years here, I've never seen a tourist taking a picture of it. Um and apparently, the, yeah, so uh, uh, Loudermilk let these guys in. They were apparently unattended to, and they just kind of, you know, did some recon. I guess, the, I guess the question there, I mean, playing devil's advocate, which gets difficult here, mm-hmm. given the facts, you could sort of say, like, hey, here's constituents. You know, are you necessarily going to say, hey, why are you taking a picture of that stairwell? Are you up to something bad? You know, mm-hmm. that that doesn't mean he knew they were doing it. But like it, this, this wasn't like one day in 1997. Right. This was <laughs> mm-hmm. things were already pretty weird at that point. Um, so it was close to the cap, close to the public that day. The, uh, yeah. The I mean, was. well, it's pretty well at a minimum, at a minimum. You would, if you were acting in any kind of good faith and you're that congressman, right after the insurrection happens, I think you call up the cops and say, hey, I was giving a tour a couple days ago. I didn't think anything of it, but these people were taking pictures, blah, 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 blah. Needless to say, he didn't do that. And, you know, one other thing I want to mention here, and and this goes to, I I hope when they talk about seven point plans and all that stuff, I hope they don't get too precise because I think it's preci- it, it is exactly one of these points. It's not like Trump had one plan. He clearly had like nine mm-hmm. different plans as, as frankly, you have to if you run anything because not every plan is going to work. So, I mean, I, <laughs> when I was educating our publisher, Joe Ragazzo, in the TPM Sciences over many years before he became publisher, one of the things I always told him is you always need six different plans because the first couple aren't going to work. And when your plan doesn't work, you can't have no plan. You need multiple plans. And in this case, clearly, uh, Trump, you know, there's the idea that they storm and they kind of disrupt enough that someone says, oh, OK, we got to postpone. Right. We got to postpone for a week because things got too weird. That's one plan. Another plan is there's some kind of hostage thing, you know, and that that's a plan. Uh, and another another case where, um, you know, it gets a delay. And there's that there's that Bark Gelman piece. Was it in the Atlantic or the New Yorker? I can't remember. Mm-hmm. Basically making the argument that the whole thing was they needed a little more time. They needed a couple more weeks to work these state legislatures. So the point wasn't necessarily that the government was going to be overthrown that day. They needed to create a blow up where there's a delay. They get a little more time. But then clearly yet another plan was uh, maybe some Antifa people or some fake Antifa people get in a dust up with the Trumpers outside the Capitol. And then Trump uh, invokes the Insurrection Act, and brings the military in and like declares martial law. So he's clearly got a bunch of different plans for how this is going to how this is going to play out. So we, and, I, and I think that, um, I, you know, I think they need to they need to capture the reality of the situation. They need to, you know, have that be clear. The one thing I would say is and I think people forget about this. You know, there's been a lot of very understandable discussion of like, you know, where was the National Guard? Where were the people who were supposed to stop this? If you and 
everybody was thinking this at the time, but in those couple weeks, the big fear was he's going to try to declare martial law. And that was, I believe it was the mayor of DC had this thing kind of like, do not bring troops into this city. So there was a lot of concern either, you know, people wanted all the troops to stay where they were because the real fear was that he was going to declare martial law. Not that you need, you know, members of the National Guard of the military to like defend the Capitol from his freak show friends who, who were trying to like, you know, hang Nancy Pelosi and Mike Pence. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this proves absolutely nothing. But one thing about the louder milk thing that is funny to me is that these people, you know, if they were doing reconnaissance, are just like holding their phones out, like taking these really obvious <laughs> pictures. I mean, it is a of a piece with how so much of this is like malice combined with just absurdity and incompetence. And it's this whole mess of that, which I think is perhaps exemplified by the debate of whether Giuliani was drunk or not when he was helping, you know, devise the the next steps of how to overthrow the election. Well, isn't there that one, you know, one of the big things of how this played out, and certainly there was that Eugene Goodman episode where he kind of lures mm-hmm. the crowd to go away from the Senate chamber. But I, I, I'm not remembering all the particulars now, but I think there are a number of points where they didn't know the way to go. They didn't know which way to go. So they clearly did not have a really good understanding of um, of, of the Capitol complex, the way if you would really, you know, kind of case the place, you, you know, it's one of those things where it's not like the Theseus and the Minotaur or something. It's not, it's not that complicated, right? You figure you get in and you figure it out, but the casing didn't go as if, if they were doing that, they didn't do a great job because in some cases they didn't know where they were going. Right. Yeah. Fair. And then there was a whole, there's scores of people that just get in there and smoke joints and stuff. I mean, it was pretty that crazy. That was the time. thing. Cause cle- <laughs> I mean, it, it's a self exonerating thing, but clearly there were a significant slice of the people there who, as soon as everything gets breached, they go ahead in with anybody, you know, with everybody else, but they didn't know exactly Mm -hmm. what to do. And they probably weren't eager to break a lot of law. That's why I think in some ways the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers is so key, because even people who like are ready to break big laws, it's always a little hard to do when it comes down to it because you get scared. Mm-hmm. You you think you're going to get in trouble, right? So it's another part of the equation, I think. Yeah. One thing I want to talk about before we move on to the sheriff story is the role that witnesses are playing in these hearings. And this is something uh, Matt mentioned when we were briefly chatting off air that, you know, it's a distinct difference from the impeachment hearings where all of, you know, we didn't have like video clips of Bill Barr and, and all the rest saying, oh, no, I told him it was bullshit, you know, and we do have that here. And it's interesting because I think these witnesses are playing all these different roles, right? Because they're they're helping show what we discussed that Trump knew or was told that it was bullshit. You know, it wasn't just, oh, he had no idea. He had no way of knowing, like all his top guys were telling him. You also have, it feels a bit like the cleaning of the laundry for these people to do the whole, well, I was on team normal. I wasn't, you know, getting sloshed with Rudy. I was telling him this was crazy. And then, 
you know, the unsaid follow-up to that is, and then I chose to say nothing about it for this, for the subsequent year and a half, you know? So what do you guys make of uh, the effect of seeing these testimonials, you know, right from the horse's mouth and what you think it's, what is it allowing the witnesses to do? Yeah. Um, well, so I'm obsessed with Bill Barr's role in this. And I was talking with Josh Kavinsky. We were, uh, we have like a Twitter space reaction to the hearings that we've been doing about Bill Barr had a unique role in lying about the election before the election happened. As far as like government officials that were really key in spreading Trump's message that there was going to be fraud and that this election result couldn't be trusted, it's hard to find someone more influential than him. Um, he said that mail-in votes weren't actually secret or anonymous, which was insane. He um, said that foreign countries would be able to counterfeit uh, mail-in ballots and then le later said he didn't have any evidence for that. He was basically just kind of riffing. Um, he had this thing where he got he, he, he allowed uh, prosecutors to get unusually involved in uh, uh, election cases in the days ahead of the election. And then one of those turned out to be a complete mess where it ended up wrecking um, some faith of, I think it was military overseas voters mm -hmm. that like a couple of them had been opened the wrong way and it turned into this national thing for a couple days. Um, so Barr's reputation, I, I mean, he was he was up there with, with Trump for me because um, I remember covering it at the time. And then this committee comes along and I think we're seeing basically the Venn diagram of people who weren't willing or able to get out of a subpoena um, and who want to sort of maintain some sort of career in Republican politics, um, but who aren't willing to sort of uh, go all the way for some reason or another. So Bill Barr is one of those. He says um, that he was willing to tell Trump the truth, but he wasn't willing to really say so publicly, except for one interview with the Associated Press. Uh, Stepien was the other one who's working for uh, Harriet Hageman, who's challenging Liz Cheney, Josh, like you said, um, who is only a candidate because she thinks the election was stolen. I mean, that's literally the only point that she's running on. And the Liz Cheney doesn't. So it's such it's a very confusing thing. Like on the one hand, it, it, it adds some credibility that these were people at the highest levels of government and the campaign who we, who are telling us that they told Trump to his face that all of this stuff was nonsense. But then it's so jarring that these are the same folks who either before or now are, are still working in the same space and, and playing by these same rules that Trump has set. Yeah, it, it's it's a funny thing. Clearly, as you say, they're laundering their own reputations. They're trying to distance themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, now they've got now that they have gotten what they wanted out of it. They're trying to kind of push that away a little, right? That's that's one thing. And as I said, I think there's also this aspect of let's kind of nudge Trump off the stage here. Let's kind of you know without without saying anything negative about him exactly. Not something that he's really going to grab onto. Just kind of factually answer the questions and kind of let this take care of Trump and ease him off the stage. Um, but in addition to that, there's a jarringness. I mean, now that we know he's not one of them, it would be as though tomorrow or at the next hearing, you saw uh, Meadows get up and and Meadows says testifies and said, oh, man, that was such bullshit. We totally lost. We knew we lost. He'd be like, wait, what? <laughs> Like, dude, what? Like, what do you, what? 
Wait, you, you totally lost? There was no, there was no fake. There was no nothing. He's like, "Yep, we lost." I told Trump, "We totally lost." That for a lot of us is Stepien that much different from Mark Meadows? Is he that much different from Bill right. Barr? Certainly, didn't seem that way. I mean, yeah, Bill Barr said kind of like, "Oh, I've not yet seen any evidence to rise to the level of blah." You know, even that it wasn't kind of like, "Dude, this is crap." Enough. He lost. Right. It, it's these things like we have not yet seen evidence of fraud significant to significant enough to change the course. So there is that kind of jarring thing where kind of it lowers a kind of a curtain or pulls away a curtain where the and this is what I mean. We all get sort of beguiled by Trump's nonsense that you have this sense, even though, you know, it didn't happen. They're all saying it constantly. So you're like, I guess they kind of believe it. It's all, they're all in a, under a spell. And then when you hear someone say like, yeah, we lost. I knew that uh, the night of the election. Very unfortunate, but we lost. And I told Trump. It's jarring. It is, it's jarring. And that, you know, it's still jarring. It still makes some kind of difference. It's crazy making. <laughs> and it, 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 the, and the, the witnesses, it, it, it does help me sort of understand that it, it, uh, it is all political. It's not some, like you said, some sincere belief that this was stolen and there's been some fraud committed on the public. It was, this is what the candidate wants. We don't believe it. We'll tell it to him to his face, but we're still working for him and we're not willing to leave. So we'll get on calls with reporters and tell them what the president told us. And maybe eventually if we're subpoenaed, maybe we'll get into it. But in the moment, there, there was that Trump. very revealing comment from Stepien where at the point at which he knew it was now Rudy calling the shots, he said something like, I, you know, receded into the background. It was something <laughs> like that. Because I don't, I don't think he ever quit. Right. It wasn't like he quit yeah. or was fired, but he just, but that was very revealing because he didn't, if someone is trying to steal, I mean, Talk about crazy making. This is the thing. Trump's trying to steal the election. He lost. There's, you know, you get sort of so wound up. Um, he didn't quit and call a press conference and say, look, this is not true. We've got to stop this. The president knows he lost. This has to come to an end. I'm sorry we lost, but we lost. He didn't do that. He just, he basically, you know, a self-protective thing. I can't touch this. I can't go there. Rudy, you go there. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. he's like Mikey. Mm-hmm. He'll eat anything. Or what is it? He won't eat anything before you guys time. <laughs> okay. So let's, uh, for in our last few minutes, let's kind of switch topics a little bit. And Matt, why don't you give us a little bit of background about what the constitutional sheriff's movement is and how it's working to mess with voting machines? Yeah. This was a story we published um, this morning um, about the constitutional sheriff's so, quote unquote movement and how they plan to uh, get involved in, again, quote-unquote, election integrity investigations. For some background, the constitutional sheriff movement is sort of a cousin of the militia movement. It started a couple decades ago and has a longer history than that, even if you want to get into the the ideological roots of it. But but it has two basic uh, premises. One is that a sheriff in his or her county is the supreme source of law enforcement authority, 
um, above the FBI, above the D- above DHS, above the president. And the second is that not only are they uh, law enforcement officers, but they're also sort of constitutional interpreters and in that if something is unconstitutional, according to a constitutional sheriff in their own county, they can just ignore it. Um, with this, we saw this during the Obama administration when there was talk about gun laws, uh, gun reform efforts. There was a wave of so-called constitutional sheriffs that would just that just said we're not willing to enforce this in our county and we won't if it becomes law and then over the past two years we saw this with pandemic restrictions sheriffs saying yeah there's a state mask mandate but i'm not going to arrest anybody for it and so it was them saying um like i said ultimate constitutional authority ultimate law enforcement authority and so as it applies to elections, um, I called the leader of this movement um, last week, Richard Mack, and, and talked about one case in particular uh, in Barry County, Michigan. And this is a, a member of this organization, Constitutional Sheriffs and Peace Officers uh, of America, um, uh, named Darleaf, who's the sheriff there. And, and basically, for the past two years, he's tried through lawsuits um, and through an investigation through his own sheriff's office to get a hold of voting machines and to take them apart and to provide evidence um, for this lie that the election was stolen. Um, he had a lawsuit that failed in December 2020 to, to impound voting machines. And then we reported last year that he had dispatched a deputy and a private investigator um, to go from township to township in Barry County and to uh, grill uh, clerks, you know, townships are small towns. So clerks are kind of, it's, it's not a huge position. It's, and it's a pretty, American elections are very granular when you get down to it. So these are folks that are, um, you know, local public servants. Um, so you show up with a sheriff's deputy and a private investigator and you demand access to the voting machines, basically. And in one case, um, a clerk allowed them to have access to a voting machine. Um, they took it to Detroit this deputy and private investigator, this is reportedly took it to Detroit, uh, disassembled it, and then returned it. And then the state got a hold of this information and, and they were like, what? <laughs> like, um, what happened to this voting machine? So now there's a statewide investigation in, Michi- in Michigan of um, basically trying to track down where unauthorized people have had access to these voting machines. Um, the state investigators went to this one town in Barry County where this happened and uh, subpoenaed the deputy, got a hold of the voting machine. The election, the investigation is ongoing. Last week, the sheriff, Darleaf, sued the state, sued the state police, sued the secretary of state, basically asserting this constitutional sheriff ideology. That voting machine is my evidence. Um, that deputy should never have been subpoenas, subpoenaed. Um, uh, the state is uh, basically usurping my, my constitutional authority. And the Constitutional Sheriffs and Peace Officers of America organization wants to emulate this. And so in my call with Richard Mack, the leader of this organization, he said he would have supported an effort to seize voting machines across the country in 2020. Uh, and and uh, he's sort of shouted out a couple other sheriffs around the country that are pursuing um, these sorts of investigations. And so I wanted to sort of plant the flag and report on this now because it's difficult to say who's really a member of this organization. This one guy, Darleaf in Michigan, is a member, but this group is influential beyond its membership. So if you have a conservative sheriff in your county and you know he thinks or she thinks that something happens in 2022 or 24, it, it's a, it gets a little bit hairy. I mean, who has the jurisdiction? Who has uh, 
whose whose property are these voting machines? Who gets to decide? Well, well I, what can, I can tell you them. what the real answer so, to that is, and it's not <laughs> right, the sheriff. Yeah. I mean, it's it's right. this whole thing. I, you know, this has been kicking around for a long time, and we've reported on these stories with these constitutional sheriff guys for a while, mm-hmm. and <laughs> the whole thing is so absurd. You know, they're they're kind of piecing together a couple misunderstood quotes and some stuff from the Middle Ages and shit. And, you know, (laughs) the voting machines are definitely not under your jurisdiction. Definitely not. And some of this is that in a lot of parts of the country, sheriffs are just these kind of other police departments that seem to have a lot of time on their hands. And they're Mm -hmm. often elected. Right. And that's that. So you have often, you know, this guy is from some very rural county in Michigan, not Mm -hmm. in the, you know, um, upper peninsula or whatever. I don't think I don't think it's that far from Detroit, but it's very rural. Um, And but but often what you have are these cases like Arpaio, Maricopa County, David Clark in Milwaukee County. So, you know, you've got a big, you know, fairly normal city that has a police department, real police. And then the county's right. got the sheriff. And and that includes the city, but there's other parts of the county where they're the authority. And sometimes they have different, you know, so kind of these overlapping jurisdictions. But the thing with the, with the sheriffs is, again, a lot of them seem to have too much time on their hands, not enough real police work to do. And they do like evictions and shit like that. Uh, but... What happens in as much as we know that police departments and chiefs of police can be unaccountable and all the different things, it's at least in a structure of accountability. Usually they report to the mayor. uh, They have to report to the city council. You know, the chief of police is usually not elected. Right. And just kind of like, oh, you're the mayor. Tough shit, dude. I'm the police chief. I have the guns, right? And so th- there's something kind of structural about sheriffs. Um, you know, I'm sure that as Trump once said, I'm sure there are many good people in the sheriff in the sheriff community. <laughs> but I was thinking just a few days ago how over the years and years and years that David Kurtz and I have been covering these stories with these kind of just like loons who pop up, it's always sheriffs. It's always sheriffs. Mm-hmm. It's just a pattern. And it was there. It, the Richard Mack was involved in the Bundy Ranch standoff. Um, so when when stuff like that happens, when I say it's a cousin cousin of the militia movement, it's like you said, it's a source of authority and importantly of perceived authority. So let's remember what happened in Antrim County, Michigan. There was some human error that was corrected in a day or whatever, but it blew up into this national Trump, this this Trump talking point that he used to fuel doubt about the election. And where did that come from? Uh, Patrick Byrne, the ex-Overstock CEO, flew in some Republican operatives on a private jet. They show up at the Antrim town hall and they say, we'd like to see your voting machine. And the town hall person says, well, all right, go for it. And just because they had the authority of Republican operatives and they were allowed in. Now imagine that at the level of a sheriff, right? So they have this perceived authority and, 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 uh, of course, these election machines don't belong to them. But imagine this in 22 or 24, if you have these folks poking around everywhere, it it ends up with a lot of potential to explode into an issue. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, uh, and then that's, you're, that's, you're asking an awful lot of these like poor town clerks, you know, yeah. being like you single-handedly yeah. have to put your body between these nutso sheriffs and the voting machines. And, and not just the fact that they have guns and right. handcuffs that, that when a, when a member of, of law enforcement, you know, not the militia, but someone who, you know, this is the kind of the double dipping with these guys. Like, do you want to be in the militia or do you want to be in law enforcement? Like pick a side, dude. Like what, you know, you're, you're trying to get in on both. For the vast majority of us, whatever our ideological position on things, if someone comes in with a uniform and a gun and a badge and they say, you need to do this, you're probably going to do that, right? Just because that's a, mm-hmm. that is the reflex response. I mean, you know, when you're, when you're driving down and a police officer puts on his lights, do you stop? Of course you stop. That's just what we're acculturated yeah. to do. Doesn't mean that I'm not saying we should have reflexive obedience to anybody with a badge but that is our reflex um so yeah it is asking mm-hmm. a lot for like some so, uh, election clerk to say you know what you got a gun but i'm not sure you're authorized so let's do let's there, let's yeah, let's, no, let's let's do it let's take it outside the interesting thing in barry county darleaf does have sort of a reputation i mean the county attorney is is at odds with him often Right. And so I talked to the count to the township clerks that got that were visited by him and his deputy and his investigator. This happened last year. And I was they had the wherewithal to know, Okay, where's your subpoena? Have you told the county clerk about this? And they hadn't. They said they were using the element of surprise. (laughs) Um, I talked to. And so I interviewing these people, they were definitely rattled. Right. I mean, like you said, someone shows up with a gun and a badge and there's another guy in a nice suit who came from Detroit. Uh, upon the recommendation of one of these lawyers who's been sh- sanctioned for lying about the election, by the way, she there's a lawyer that's involved in, in all of this and they're tied to Sidney Powell and all the rest of it. But in this county where Darleaf has a reputation for this sort of thing, these clerks had had um, had a hunch that something was up. And also they were they were a bit upset that these folks were, were implying there was something wrong with their elections. Um, but my concern is um you know, there are a lot of folks that don't have the reputation that Darleaf has. And so if you're a clerk somewhere in Arizona, Nevada, uh, in Michigan, maybe another county, uh, who knows what could happen? So I I wanted to just uh, flag for uh, any any clerks that might be in our readership. Uh, Keep an eye out for this. Right, right, right. All right. Okie doke. Well, remember, uh, the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can get 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. And remember, we're having our TPM Journalism Fund uh, drive ongoing right now. So if you're able, if you want to head over to the site and make a contribution, we'd all greatly appreciate it. All right. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Matt, for coming on. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Later. The Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song, and thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe wherever you listen. 